So I wanna, I wanna talk to you about persecution. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter seven, and at the tail end of Acts chapter seven, there was that sad event where one of the early seven leaders that were appointed by the church to oversee the food distribution program became the first Christian martyr, uh, Stephen was martyred for his, his, his faith in Jesus. And if you remember in that narrative, there's a little sidebar comment that's made, which sets us up for chapter eight. And the sidebar comment tells us that there was a man by the name of Saul who was there observing the martyrdom of Stephen. As we get into chapter eight, we're gonna look at the first eight verses. Saul's name is gonna pop back up in the text and it's important for us to understand how he functions in the broader biblical narrative, but also especially in this text. Well, as we think about persecution, as you study times in, in history when Christians have been persecuted, or even when people groups have clashed, resulting in a genocide, there's actually a series of steps that almost always unfolds or takes place, a bit of a pattern, if you will, that leads towards persecution. It starts with a denial of God's laws. Now, as Christians, when we think of God's laws, unfortunately, we often go back and think, oh, you're talking about Levitical laws. And we're opposed to Levitical laws because we're into grace. So we have this antinomian sentiment in many Christian churches today, meaning this anti-law. We're sort of opposed to the law because somehow we think that the law is the antithesis of grace. But if you look at the whole of scripture, what you discover is that God has put various laws, boundaries, if you will, or principles in place to govern the various institutions that he has established or permitted to be established in any culture. So right out of the gates in Genesis chapter one, two, and three, we have the, the creational institution of marriage. It's not a distinctly Christian institution, it's a creational institution. Paul talks about its Christian nature in Ephesians chapter five, but marriage is marriage is marriage, depending on, or regardless of what culture or context or religion that you're in, God has put laws into place. And the most fundamental law that pertains to marriage is that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, not two men or two women. Again, this isn't distinct to the Christian church. This is a creational law God established the, the idea of marriage and God gets to set its boundaries. And God has decided in his benevolence that a marriage should be, be between one man and one woman in a covenantal union for life. God has also established something called parents. Kids don't create kids, parents create kids. And there's transcultural laws in place that govern family structures. There are also our laws in God's word that pertain to how we function as an ecclesiastical institution. So as we thumb through the pages of the Bible, there's, there's information there, there's laws, if you will, principles as to how we should treat each other as a church, how we conduct ourselves in baptism or in the Lord's Supper or in church eldership. Those are ecclesiastical laws, but they're not the sum total of God's laws. Again, there's laws for marriage, there's laws for the family, and there's also laws in God's word pertaining to how states, nation states should govern themselves. And in fact, there's a preeminent law in the word of God that tells us that nations have a right to exist. As a result of Babel, God has established nations and there's boundaries that are established to guard national sovereignty. When we see nations moving towards persecution, and maybe Christians are being persecuted, if we trail it back, what we see at the very beginning is a denial or downplaying or ridiculing of God's laws. But the, the fact of the matter is that when human beings gather together, so when they gather together in a country called Canada, or when they gather together on the ice rink to play a hockey game, or when they gather together around the kitchen table as a family, Whenever human beings gather, there necessarily has to be authority structures in place. Somebody has to be in charge. So in, in a hockey game, there's the owner, the coach, the captain, 
the assistant captain, and then even sort of on an unwritten level, there's the veteran players and the rookies, and they all have different levels of authority or input into the organization. It's the same in the church, it's the same in the state, it's the same in the family. When you have groups of people that gather who refuse to acknowledge authority, you end up with anarchy, and that's always a disaster. So we do believe that there are spheres of authority, but what happens is when the state denies God's law, someone has to be the ultimate authority. And there has to be some ultimate law code that you appeal to, to determine what's right and wrong, what's acceptable within that organization. And what we've seen in the West is increasingly the laws of God are denied, they're thrown out, they're set aside, but someone has to be in charge. Someone has to say, that's right, that's wrong, that's permissible, that's not permissible. And so we have the rise of the state, the rise of the state and the state in a certain sense becomes like the de facto God of the nation. Well, every person in authority needs a code book, some ultimate authority to appeal to. The state decides, well, we're just gonna write our own codes. We're gonna decide what's right or wrong. We've decided that it's okay for men to marry men. That's a moral declaration. We've decided that it's okay for women to marry women. We've decided that it's okay for the state to control bodily autonomy. We've decided that it's okay for the state to control who can work and under what circumstances. This is a religious construct. Well, once you get to that point in history, then the stage has been set and you now have an us versus them dynamic that comes into play. Those that are advocating for the rule of God, those that are advocating for the rule of the state. And in that context, and we've seen this time and time again in in history, unpack itself, you start to have speech laws. That's hate speech. You're disseminating misinformation or disinformation. That's dangerous rhetoric. You can't say that. We're gonna cancel you. We're going to censor you. We're going to indoctrinate your children. There's gonna be mandatory courses that you have to take if you're gonna work in our corporation. There's gonna have to be statements that you need to sign if you want charitable status. And if you do not comply with whoever it is that's usurped the authority of God, then there is penalization, jail time, fines, public, being publicly ostracized, whatever it might be. Now we see this throughout history. We saw this with the rise of communism in China, for example, with the rise of Marxism in Eastern Europe. We see this with the rise of statism and totalitarianism and neo-paganism in the West. And it's a different package, but it's all the same basic stuff. And so we can expect that there will be increased persecution levied against anyone that puts up their hand and says, actually, I think the ultimate authority is Christ. I actually believe that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, not just within the church, but over all of life. We can expect to see that. And that might sound like bad news to you, but what we're gonna see in Acts chapter eight as the church in the first century experiences persecution is actually good news. And the message is is that God actually uses persecution to expose wickedness. The orcs step out into the sunlight, they're exposed. God uses persecution to expose wickedness and to grow his church. He does it time and time and time again throughout history. Join me in Acts chapter eight. And I wanna start off by reflecting on verses one to three. And the idea here that I wanna sort of drive home, and again, it might sound like bad news at first, but we're gonna take it in a a good news direction, is that persecution is inevitable. It's inevitable. So we met Paul, known as Saul here in Acts chapter seven. And at the first part of uh, verse one of chapter eight, it says, and Saul approved of his execution. So Saul approved of the execution 
of Stephen. He believed that Stephen's claim that Jesus Christ was King of Kings and Lord of Lords was so egregious and so offensive that he deserved of all punishments, capital death. Well, having gotten away with it, you'll notice what happens next. And there arose on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Again, this is history repeating itself. When those that reject the ultimate authority of Christ play their cards, reveal their hand, persecute God's people and get away with it. All the restraints are thrown off. And Saul decides to attack people, not just in the synagogues, not just in the public square. In other words, he didn't just want to stop public worship. He wanted to stop the worship of Christ, period. So he invades private property. You'll notice what they do here. So they go, there's a great persecution that comes against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Somehow the apostles were able to maintain a stronghold. Maybe, we're just guessing here, because they had a little more political power and their opponents weren't quite sure if they should go after the guys at the top yet. Now, in contrast to their behavior, you'll notice what the next line says in verse two. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And then back to Saul, but Saul was ravaging the church. That's a harsh word. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He violates God's law. He invades private property. He drags people off to jail. And we have this sandwiching effect here. We have persecution. Then we're reminded that there still are devout people that take Stephen's body and bury it. And then we're back to more persecution. So for the second time, we are introduced to this young, zealous reprobate by the name of Saul. He was complicit in Stephen's stoning. He approved of Stephen's stoning. But he wasn't just an innocent bystander. He also took it upon himself to invade people's homes and to drag them out and to toss them in jail for the high crime of worshiping the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's emboldened by the supposed win of Stephen's death. And so these evildoers lash out against all Christians. They arrest people. They imprison people. They aren't content with confining them to their houses of worship. They aren't content to drive them out of political office or out of the, the academies of the day, or out of their places of employment. They want to drive them out of the most private, the most intimate the safest place on earth. They want to drive them out of their homes. They want to eradicate them. They want them, they want them gone. They want to stamp out public worship. They want to stamp out private worship. Now, we've, we've seen this many times throughout the history of the world. Many of you have probably spent some time thinking on or reflecting upon what took place in Eastern Europe and in in China, with the rise of, of communism, I've had the privilege on two occasions to preach in the underground church in China. And even up to this day, it is illegal to meet in your home to worship the risen Christ. There may be periods of time when they let you get away with it, other times when they crack the whip. But if you want to start a church in China and you want it to be public, it has to be a state-sanctioned church. Your pastors are trained by the state. You're approved by the state. And to the best of my knowledge, at least when I was there, there was only four of them in all of Beijing, in a city that has the equivalent population to the entire dominion of Canada. Private worship is illegal. Why? Because it's a threat. It's a threat to the antichrist leaders of our day. Those that would usurp authority and collect all authority unto themselves are intimidated by people gathering together and saying, actually, no, our ultimate authority is the Bible. 
And the king that sits on the throne that we worship is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an offense to the autonomy of man. And we see this in a different package, increasingly becoming the, 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 the same reality in statist Canada to the point that we actually have a federal bill voted on unanimously in our houses of parliament, approved in our Senate that declares God's creational truth about human sexuality, the exact language is to be a myth. That's a religious bill. That's an antichrist bill. That's a bill put forward by those who hate the idea that they must submit themselves to the true king of kings and Lord of Lords. Now, by contrast, a series of devout men come, put themselves on display. It would have been obvious what they were doing. They out themselves. They take Stephen's body and they give him a proper burial. Now, this is just one small event in this big book that we call the Bible, which, which includes many different narratives and accounts and depictions of things that have happened throughout biblical history. But in many respects, brothers and sisters, this, this little incident here is a snapshot, a summary of the cosmic battle that's been raging and will continue to rage from Genesis chapter three until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a battle around the idea of who's in charge. Like who is the ultimate authority? That's what it all boils down to. All sin is ultimately a repudiation of Christ's authority over your life. That's what it is. It's a battle for authority. Statism is a battle for authority. Hedonism is a battle for authority. Materialism is a battle for authority. Neopaganism is a battle for authority. Totalitarianism is a battle for authority. Communism is a battle for authority. Marxism is a battle for authority. It's all about authority. It's all about who's in charge. It's all about who's your daddy. And who are you accountable to? It's all about authority. And here we have this cosmic display, this snapshot of the whole of history, evildoers usurping the authority of God in favor of their own authority versus a remnant, the supposed underdogs, a faithful gathering of devoted believers who are committing themselves to righteousness. Now, it's easy when you read narratives like this to think, well, I'm part of the remnant. That's who I am. I'm not one of the bad guys. I'm not one of the evildoers. It's easy to, to think of this simply as a, a human on human battle. It's, it's one group claiming authority over here and a different group over here. It's, it's the Christians saying that Christ is king and the, the atheists or the commies or the Marxists or whoever happens to be in power in a particular context claiming authority. And the only way to solve it is to eliminate or suppress one group or the other. It's easy to think that that's, that's as simple as it is. But in actual fact, there's something deeper going on here. Saul, at this point in his life, is serving as the archetype of evil. That's true. He's serving as the archetype of evil. He's an arrester of God's people. But as we follow through our reading of the rest of scripture, we discover that a time will soon come when God will arrest him. He will arrest him in his sin. He will expose him to his rebellion. He will convict him of his unrighteousness. And he will grant him his unmerited grace and favor. He will be tried. He will be condemned. He will be declared guilty. And then he will be redeemed and rescued and restored and forgiven and become useful to the purposes of the eternal God. In this process, he would be humiliated. For a period of time, Saul would lose his, his vision. 
his pompous arrogance would be humbled. His sins would be exposed. His weaknesses would put, be put on display. And he would be exposed to the truth of both God's revelation, his truth about who Christ is, and he would be exposed to the person of God himself. And so brothers and sisters, hear me clearly on this. Saul is not so much a picture of our enemies, but he's a picture of our former selves. He's a picture of our former selves. Sinful and depraved by nature, rebels without a cause and desperately in need of being humbled under the mighty hand of God. Without that, you cannot reform your hockey team, you cannot reform your family, you cannot reform your marriage, and you cannot reform your nation. Unless a nation, any gathering of people for that matter, any institution, any social institution, any creational institution is centered on Christ, you cannot bring Reform. Now, this is um, a, a wonderful reminder that we have hope in the victory of goodness over evil, but also the forgiveness of sins, which is available to us as we surrender and bow the knee to Jesus Christ as our King. We see this in Saul's amazing radical conversion. Here we have this creepy persecutor peering through people's windows, kicking in their doors, arresting them for their private worship. We have the creepy persecutor of God's people becoming a champion for Christ. I mean, people look down on Judas for betraying Christ. But think about what Paul was doing prior to his conversion. And yet we still name our children after him. Why? Not because of who he innately was, but because God got a hold of him and he became a, a warrior for Christ. He moved from being an emissary of evil to an emissary of the king, from an ambassador of the devil to an ambassador for Christ. God redirects all that passion and that zeal and that self-righteousness in Paul, in Saul, and in his personality into a passion and righteousness and zealousness for Christ. By the way, this explains why we should pray the prayer that we're directed to pray in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, where we're told to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because you know what? Someone prayed for us. Somebody prayed for us. And that's why many of us have experienced the love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And frankly, if our resumes were put on display before Christ, before we came to Christ for all the world to see, we might find our resumes to be just as embarrassing, if not maybe a little more embarrassing as Saul's. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. It is church. I'm supposed to be honest here. We've all committed our high crimes against the king. We've all usurped his authority. We've all rejected his eternal laws. We've all tried to create our own and concoct all sorts, all sorts of excuses for disobedience. But thank God for the amazing grace of God in Christ. So persecution is inevitable. If you're following Christ, you are therefore going to be declaring his lordship. And that's going to get you into trouble with people. Persecution is inevitable if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what? Persecution also increases proclamation. Persecution increases proclamation. It positions us for great opportunities to proclaim his lordship, to challenge the authority structures, to challenge the immoral codes of our culture. In verse 4, the Bible says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You know, the amazing thing is the devil always overplays his hands. He always overplays his hands. It's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after the church. I'm going to suppress them. I'm going to close them down. I'm going to kill. I'm going to maim. I'm going to find whatever it is he happens to be doing in a particular culture and time. I'm going to sow seeds of doubt or discord or hijack their seminaries or hijack their pulpits or whatever it might be. But he always overplays his hand. Because as God's people gather 
to worship and then are run out of their homes, they scatter. And guess what they continue to do? They worship and they continue to preach. So now there's like this exponential growth of the gospel. There's an attempt to stifle the gospel message to force the disciples to flee. But as they're driven from their synagogues, their homes and their public squares, what do they do? They just go to other regions and preach a little harder and love a little better and win even more people to Christ. So we already met the seven, they were named a couple chapters back. And Stephen was a prominent member and he went out and preached the gospel and he had his life taken and became the first martyr. And now we're introduced to another man that was among the original seven. And that's a man by the name of Philip. And Philip would have been one of the ones that was scattered and it says here in verse five, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the anointed one. Now the, the naming of the particular location that he attends is important, really important actually. He goes to the city of Samaria. Now the city of Samaria is within a region called Samaria. And the city of Samaria if you go back in biblical history, we have the United Kingdom of Israel, all the 12 tribes come into the promised land. They set up their establishments and each tribe is allotted some territory except for the, the Levites because they're the, the priestly class. They're sort of scattered abroad throughout the nation to represent Christ in synagogue and temple worship. And then we have uh, the appointment of, of kings. Saul, he doesn't work out so well. And then David, he comes up and he does a pretty good job. And Solomon expands the kingdom. And then when Solomon dies, the kingdom goes to his son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam's a bit of a punk. And he consults with his, the youth group instead of the elders council for how he should govern the nation and ultimately splits it. And 10 tribes formed what's called the Northern Kingdom. They just call themselves collectively Israel. And two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, formed the, the Southern Kingdom. They just typically went by Judah or sometimes we could call them Israel as well in the South. But there's, there's a rift between the Northern and Southern Kingdoms. And the Southern Kingdom is situated in such a way that they still have Jerusalem as their capital and their place of worship. But the Northern Kingdom decides it's gonna set up sort of a rival place of worship in what's called the city of Samaria. So initially we have the city of Samaria and that kind of bumps along for several generations. And then there's a cataclysmic event that happens. You can circle on your calendar, 722 BC. The Assyrians at the time are like the world superpower. And they're out trying to expand their empire. And so they invade the Northern Kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom, the Northern tribes, and deport the vast majority of Jews off into Assyria. But they left a few people behind, perhaps because they were hiding or perhaps to tend the land a little bit to keep the lions and tigers and wildlife from destroying the, the fertile land. And so we have a few Jews that are, that are left behind and the Assyrians also import additional people from some of the other tribes they have conquered and you know how history goes. You got young Jewish man, young Jewish woman, young Gentile man, young Gentile woman. They meet on the road, they start to talk, they get married, they have kids. And before long, there's this admixture of Jews and Gentiles that come together and they form a new ethnic group, if you will, a new people called the Samaritans. And then in 586, in the Southern Kingdom, a serious power had waned, Babylon had risen up and Babylon comes in and they sack Jerusalem and deport the Southern tribes into Babylon for 70 years. And then of course, you, you know the story, they come back and they repopulate the land and rebuild the temple and so forth about 500 years or so before Christ enters the scene. But the idea here is, is that the Samaritans from there forward were viewed by the Jews as compromised people. They were a mixture of Jew and Gentile. They weren't pure bloods, true bloods, the true people of God. Their worship was on a place called Mount Gerizim. 
So there was animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews for centuries. And now we come to the first century church, which is founded by Jews converted out of Judaism to Christianity. And the question is, are they going to maintain their animosity towards non-Jews, towards the Samaritans? This is, by the way, why Jesus deliberately tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan that does that which is right, while people of the covenant walk by the man in the ditch. It, it demonstrates, it tips people off to the fact that there, there is righteousness outside of, of Israel. It tips people off to the fact that God is expanding the horizons of his, his gospel ministry to be more global and expansive in nature. So there's three things that are important about Philip's evangelism in Samaria. First, because in Samaritan theology, they were also waiting for a Messiah. And the receptivity to the idea of a messianic figure coming to redeem them was pretty high. So the fields were ripe for harvest. We know our Lord Jesus Christ spent some time in that region ministering to the Samaritan woman, for example, at the famous Samaritan woman at the well experience. Secondly, they were outcasts in the mind of the Jews, as I've already mentioned, due to their mixed ancestry. So the fact that Philip, as a Christian preacher, would go to them points to the expansive global goals of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One could say that the only globalism that an informed Christian should support is gospel globalism. We want the gospel to go global. And in fact, it has. And third, it's a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. If you go back to the first chapter of Acts, it says in Acts 1.8, but you will, not might, not maybe, not it might happen, might not, I'm not really sure. He makes a promise here. He says, but, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's chapter one. That happened in chapter two with the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. And then after that, it says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So that had happened. That's why they were being persecuted, run out of their homes. So see God's progressively unpacking his promise here. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So it's a fulfillment of God's promise. And also it informs the gospel mandate that we want people from all tribes, tongues, and nations to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, we've seen persecution in the text and it's evil and it's wrong. But we also have learned that Christ's mission is being fulfilled and persecution will never hinder or thwart the sovereign purposes of God. When the Christians were being run out of their synagogues and run out of their homes, they didn't know what was gonna happen the next day. We have the rest of the story at our disposal. And so it's easy to say, yeah, yeah. I knew God would do that because I've already read it. But in your moment, you might not feel that God is with you. You might feel that God has abandoned you. You might feel that the pressure is getting a little strong and you might wonder, is God still here? Or has he abandoned our, our nation? Has he abandoned our church? Well, here we have this reminder that Christ's mission will be fulfilled. And no matter how nasty his enemies are, the church of Jesus Christ will prevail. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So we might find ourselves at times, and I do as well, discouraged by the events of the moment. I was thinking this week, where could we all go and build our own island? Like if we each got 40 dump trucks loaded full of dirt. Maybe we could build our own island someplace and just escape from all the craziness of the moment. The problem is we'll just bring our own sin with us, won't we? And if Christ is not supreme over each one of our lives, we'll just repeat this kind of thing again and again in human history. It can be very discouraging to look at the events of the moment, especially when the curve seems to have just dropped off the cliff. I mean, the decline is startling but we needn't be discouraged by the overall mission. Christ is still alive and well, and he's doing his thing. Saul couldn't slow him down. 
Marxism couldn't slow him down. Atheism couldn't slow him down. Statism will not slow him down. Nothing will stand ultimately in the way of our God. And we can take that one to the bank, by the way. Look what it says in verses six, seven, and eight. Philip's in Samaria. He's a foreigner. Look what happens. And the crowds, that's an expansive word, with one accord, that's an inclusive word, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And then check this out. This is a beautiful verse, brothers and sisters. So there was much joy in that city. Imagine that. There wouldn't have been joy if there hadn't been persecution because Philip would have been back in Jerusalem ministering to his neighbor. We've seen this time and time again in the ministry of the apostles. They're preaching the gospel of forgiveness. It's accompanied with signs and healings and exorcisms of demons as part and parcel of the gospel. Why does God do that sort of thing? He does it to prove to us in our humanity that he is not just the Lord of heaven, but he's also the Lord of earth. He is the Lord of all principalities and powers. He is the Lord of physical disease. He is the Lord of death itself. His authority is comprehensive over all of life. And it also points us forward to our eschatological vision that in the future, all things will be made new. And in his eternal kingdom, there will be no weeping, or crying or mourning for such things will be passed away and all things will be made new. So this is a glimpse into our eschatological hope, our, our future hope. Now it would be wrong to assume that if Christ has the power over death and disease, that we will never suffer in the here and now. That would be contrary to the text. We just saw Stephen put to death for Christ. We just saw Christians run out of their homes for Christ. So it would be wrong to assume, well, because this happened here, then it's automatic for all of us that we'll never suffer, that suffering somehow indicates we don't have enough faith. These people had a lot of faith. That suffering somehow indicates that God has abandoned us. God had not abandoned them. But God was working out his plan through these difficult circumstances to ultimately bring many people to himself and bring glory to himself. It would also be equally wrong to deny our sovereign God continued present day authority over demonic powers, over disease and over death. Our sovereign God has the right to heal or conquer demons in the current era in any way that he sees fit because his sovereignty is not limited to a particular era. His sovereignty is expansive. It's absolute. It's continuous over all of life. By the way, it's also a good reminder to those of us that have been raised in a Darwinian world that has reduced our human identity down to our biology that would say to you, the sum total of who you are as a human being is your, your biotic health and therefore, if you have a disease, an ailment, a problem, we can fix it. We'll just develop a new injection, a new medication, a new surgery. We'll train a few more medical experts. They can heal anything. It's a reminder to us that some physical ailments are actually demonic in nature. Some physical ailments are actually demonic in nature. There's some physical ailments that can only be resolved by prayer and fasting. The devil oppresses God's people and the devil and his hordes possess those that are his enemies. And so we're not just dealing with physical ailments, brothers and sisters. We're also dealing at times with spiritual ailments, ones that cannot be resolved by popping a few more pills 
or by seeing a therapist, but some that can only be resolved through abject surrender to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, even today. While rejoicing in persecution positions us to bear much fruit for Christ. And as a result of Philip's steadfastness, instead of having his life taken, same mission, different outcome, you could say, but instead of having his life taken, it says, and there was much joy in that city. How beautiful is that? Who here couldn't use a little more joy? It's a beautiful thing. When you have joy and you have peace in the midst of turmoil and trial and tribulations, it's a beautiful thing. You can't pay for that and you'll never sell it. I mean, that's a precious thing when you have joy in the Lord, when you have peace that surpasses human understanding. It doesn't mean it's nonsensical, but it makes no sense from a human perspective. It's supernatural. It's gifted by God. This is a beautiful thing. And that kind of joy, that kind of peace, that kind of, you know what? Everything's gonna be okay kind of mindset is available to us when we surrender ourselves to the person and the mission of our King. I wanna end my message today by sharing four take-homes with you. I want you to be able to pack these up and, and take them home and mull them over and put them into practice this week. And in order to do that, I wanna take you to four scripture passages outside of the book of Acts. I'll just read these passages for you. I don't think they're gonna be on the screen. I'd prefer they not be because I do want you to um, use your Bibles. It says in um, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, check this out. T tell me if this isn't relevant and if God doesn't know us. You're being tried, you're being canceled, you're being censored, you see the trajectory before you, it doesn't look good. What's the natural human response? Fear. But here's what God says. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear them. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is not only an encouragement, this is an injunction. This is a commandment. This is a directive. This is how God wants us to live. He does not want us to live in fear. He does not want us to live in fear of losing our lives or losing our jobs. He does not want us to live in fear, even though in the here and now, the enemy might prevail over us. Your body might be destroyed as it was with Stevens, but we do not live in fear. Rather, we fear the one who is in charge of all of life and can, can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. So be encouraged by this church. Do not allow fear to take a foothold in your life. Denounce it, repudiate it. Remind yourself of biblical theology. Remind yourself of how this ends. Remind yourself of who God is. Remind yourself of his past deliverance of his people or his past deliverance of you. Do not live in fear. Do not live in fear of man. Do not live in fear of the state. Do not live in fear of others in the church, but be bold and courageous for Christ and you'll be blessed and you will have joy unspeakable. Secondly, in the book of James chapter one, verses two to four, we see a little glimpse into how God works. Because sometimes in the moment we're like, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. This doesn't feel good. What are you doing? Well, sometimes in the moment when we know what God is doing, it just makes it a little more tolerable. So the command here is count it all joy. There's that word again, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There's gonna be trial, that's the constant. The kind of trial is gonna change, culture to culture, lifespan to lifespan. But trials are gonna be constant. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, and you do know, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, don't run before you've learned. Let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, which means, in summary, to be mature. Don't run from it. Allow God to use the suffering, to, to use the trials, to work in you, whatever it is he wants to work in you. And ultimately, it's about being steadfast. It's about being faithful. It's about persevering. Now, this does not mean you literally cannot run. They ran. It doesn't mean that if someone's coming after you to shoot you, that you stand there and stick your you know, head out or take a step toward them. But spiritually, you never run. You lean in, you stay the course, you champion the cause, you declare your allegiance, you obey the word, and you let God work in you to build you up. You cannot be a mature Christian in this world without suffering. You cannot. How can you possibly be steadfast or patient, which is a fruit of the spirit, if there's nothing you've ever had to wait for? So let's keep this in mind. We count it joy. We, we, know what's at the, we know what's around the curve. We know where this is headed. Third, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, Paul speaks to the heart. By the way, this is Paul now, the guy that's featured in Acts chapter 8, now a Christian, many decades have passed. And he speaks to the internal reality of, of losing heart. It happens so easily. He says, so we do not lose heart heart. We don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, if I was in a pastoral counseling situation and someone said to me, pastor, I just, I just lost a friend, or I just discovered that I have a cancerous tumor, or my boss just kicked me to the curve, curb. If I said to them, you know what, that's nothing. Let me tell you about my suffering. Or why are you here? Like, no big deal. You say that, man, he's pretty pastorally insensitive. But there are times, there are times when we do have to do a little bit of that with one another. Kind of like put perspective on things. Put perspective on it. And that's what Paul gifts us with here. Notice what he says. He says, for this light momentary affliction, he reduces the intensity of the trial. It's like, put it in perspective. It might seem like a foreboding monster, but put it in perspective. It's really not as big of a deal as you might think it is. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Far greater than the trials of the moment. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. I think it was Dr. Richard Mao who was experiencing a trial in his life, his wife was dying of cancer, perhaps had just died of cancer. This is going back 30 years or so, so the details escape me. But in that trial, in his trial, in his trial, he understood this concept of a light momentary affliction. He made a comment to the effect, he was reminded of this, that our lives are but a flash of time wedged between two eternities. Puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Because this is all we know. We think this is it. This is just a wet, a little bit of time, just a sliver of time wedged between two eternities. And you're like, you're right. I mean, in the moment, it seems like it's overwhelming. But in the big picture, it's just a light, momentary affliction. Helps us to endure. And the final passage I'll share with you is a passage pertaining to victory. It's found in Luke chapter 20, verses 41 to 42, where the writer Luke is quoting from the Psalms from a Psalm of David. And he says, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. How would you like to be employed as a footstool? How abusive would it be for a parent to summon one of their children and say, you know what, I just worked a long, hard day. I know my feet smell like cider vinegar. I know my socks haven't been changed, but I want to put my feet up on you and stick your toe in their nose, stick your toe in their mouth. To be a footstool is not a place of dignity. It's a place of subjection. And this is the analogy. We're reminded here that the, the Messiah, the King of Kings, is putting and will put his enemies under him like a footstool. Those that have set up their own little thrones will be yanked off those thrones, thrown to the ground, and they will become the footstool upon which the king will rest his feet. And because we are his servants and subjects, and because we are in Christ and of Christ, we have and will participate in that victory. We know how this ends. The losers lose and the winners win. Christ already is Christ's victor. He's already won. So in the here and now, our job is to stand for him as his emissaries and ambassadors, to speak the truth in love to speak the truth into the darkness, to expose evil, to preach the full gospel of Jesus Christ, and to ensure that in all the decisions we make, he is clearly demarcated as our king and our Lord, and that we never allow anyone to usurp his ultimate authority in that respect. And by taking that bold stand, we can be assured that the Lord will use us to reach more and more people for Christ, but also galvanize us in our faith. So be encouraged, church, by these words. 